You convinced <laughs> that our Redeemer lives? Um, well, that's what we're going to look at tonight. Uh, if you would turn in the Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth, um, one of four, we believe. That'll confuse you. There are only two in the Bible, but uh, this is the first one that we have recorded for us. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, it's on page 1156 in the Pew Bibles. Uh, we're not going to read it um, straight through. We're going to read it portion by portion as I come to it. Tonight we're looking um, at the resurrected body. If you're here next Sunday morning for a baptismal service when four people will uh, go through the waters of baptism, uh, we're going to be looking at the first part of this chapter. Now, I know it's a bit switched around, but it's just the way that it works for the themes, and I've decided to do the resurrected body uh, tonight, and then look at the resurrection hope next Sunday morning. Um, okay, introduction. You too can have a body like mine, if you're not careful. Um, no exercise, lots of overeating. No, that, that, these are not pictures of me, just in case you get terribly excited. Uh, uh, the guy on the screen um, is a famous bodybuilder from around the middle of the last century. And if you're turning to your wife or your husband just now going, oh, I remember him, then you're really old. Uh, his name was Charles Atlas. And among other things, he popularized various advertising slogans like the phrase, the 97-pound weakling, or you too can have a body like mine. Um, if you ever wonder what became of him, he died of heart failure on Christmas Eve, 1972, albeit at the age of 80. So I have got a body like his, because one day, too, I will die, and so will each of you. Well, that's a cheery thought at the top of the sermon. Death and dying are not high on the agenda, are they? Uh, or ni neither are they the focus for a society whose worldview either prefers to deny the reality of death or to paste it over with sentimental platitudes that are at best no more than wishful thinking or at worst, demonically inspired, unbiblical doctrines. In the first half of this chapter, uh, chapter 15, the Apostle Paul deals with something that lies at the heart of the Christian gospel of Jesus Christ. Now you and I, if we've been around the church for any length of time, we will have been taught that the word gospel literally and simply means good news. And vital to the good news that Paul had preached to the Corinthians was that Jesus had physically been raised from the dead in complete compliance with what Scripture had predicted would happen uh, precisely according to the time scale in which it said things would happen. But not only was Jesus' re resurrection prophesied uh, at least 700 years before it happened, it was verified and testified to by over 500 independent witnesses. Jesus physically rose from the dead. And as Paul writes this letter to the Corinthians, Many of these 500 witnesses, including the apostles, are alive at the time that he writes. And he's writing this section to refute some of the teaching of teachers in Corinth who were undermining the essence and the power of the gospel message. They were saying 
like so many false teachers still do today, uh, some who claim to be Christian, that the resurrection is not a physical, but is rather a spiritual reality. Uh, so in the first part of this that we'll look at next Sunday morning, uh, Paul has previously explained that the of first importance nature of Jesus' physical resurrection is in relation to fulfillment of Scripture and the experience of the people who had witnessed it. But you know, there's another key truth here that it's important for us to get a hold of if we're to understand the passage that we're looking at tonight. It's, it's of first importance that we believe that Jesus was physically raised from the dead, but it's secondly um, important that we grasp a hold of this teaching that Paul describes Jesus' resurrection as first fruits. That reference to first fruits is an illustration drawn from the Old Testament religious festival when, when the worshippers, year by year by year, would take the first portion of their harvest, the first fruits. The whole harvest isn't in, but as the harvest begins to appear, they take the first part that grows of that and they bring it in worship before God and they give it in sacrifice to Him, saying, Lord, we're assured the harvest is coming. And, and we're so confident that it's coming. Look, here's the evidence, the first fruits of the harvest. We can be assured the rest is coming. And Paul is saying to the church in Corinth, you can be so sure that you too will be resurrected, that God has risen from the dead as evidence of first fruits of, cre of uh, resurrection, Jesus physically coming back from the grave. Uh, one Christian writer has said that we must accept physical death as a reality, but rather than as is popularly the case, just look around in society where uh, death is viewed as kind of the final development of our cycle of life, um, a teaching that we've uh, drawn in from, from Eastern religions, particularly Hinduism, uh, some Buddhist uh, influences there as well that the Christian writer says that we shouldn't see death as something that is either natural or good. He says death is an aberration. It's an obscenity. It's a blight on the human race because of its alienation from God. Jesus was outraged by it. He wept over its horror, and he attacked it as an enemy to be defeated. And because he defeated it, he was raised from the dead with a new body, and he has extended this possibility to us as well. Hallelujah. When, when as Christians, we bury or we cremate our dead, we commend them in the sure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We don't just simply reconcile that it is better for them that their suffering is over and that they've departed to a better place. That's sentimentalism. That's a platitude that's offered by some people in the face of death. Isn't it good that their suffering's over? Well, they've gone to a better place. Jesus rose from the dead, giving us the hope and the certainty of a resurrected body. The idea of a resurrected body raises numerous questions for us, as it did for the people of the first century to whom Paul preached the whole gospel message. Now, the first two or five questions he answers in a reading relating to the resurrection body are obvious. They're right there. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 35. 
two questions that he's going to address in the following verses. How are the dead raised, and with what kind of body will they come? That's verse 35. Well, Paul answers the first of these questions in verses 36 through 41, and the second in verses 42 through 44. So just let's take them as they come. Let's continue. How are the dead raised is the question posed in verse 35. Let's read on into verse 36. How foolish! What you sow does not come back to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. All flesh is not the same. Men have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. And there are also heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another. The stars differ from star to star in splendor. That's his pause there. You see, I, I just love the way that Paul counters that question. How are the dead raised? He's not at all apologetic or philosophical in his response in dealing with these questions. To the people who ask the questions, he says, fools. Uh, we've kind of toned down the expression a little bit in the NIV. How foolish. That seems to be more acceptable. But he's still basically saying, um, your questions are a bit of a no-brainer. He's not using a Greek style of teaching here, but rather relying on his uh, Jewish rabbinic way of saying, um, just listen to what I'm teaching. Don't, don't question this. See, the Jewish style and method of teaching doesn't have the same emphasis of Greek educational methods, which we still use in our schools and universities and colleges today, of questioning uh, and, and looking philosophically, pondering every possibility and probability in its quest for reason and truth. You see, if we did, how can the dead be raised? How can the dead be raised? Think about it. And that's what's happening. Uh, today, people ask the same perplexing question as a pastor. Uh, many people over the last 20 years or so have asked, Do you know, is it okay for me to be cremated rather than be buried? Pastor, I'd like to leave my body, body to medical research. Is that okay? Uh, and the first time I was ever asked that question, it raised huge questions for me. Nobody ever had told me about whether it was okay or not. Um, sadly, I think it's got to be the ultimate rejection because when the poor lady died, the medical people didn't want her. Um, so we had a burial after all. But these raised questions for us. What if someone's lost at sea? What if someone uh, is incinerated in a house fire, completely evaporated in a nuclear explosion? What happens? What about the missionaries who were eaten by cannibals? Raises questions. How can the dead be raised? Well, Paul has no patience with people who ask such stupid questions. You see, the question is not whether people can be resurrected from the dead, but it's actually a question of whether or not God exists. And that's what he's pointing us to. See, if God exists... And since he is responsible for creating the vast complex of planetary systems within the universe, 
and forming every variety of life found on planet Earth, what is it to him to be able to give us resurrected bodies? If he transforms a seed to wheat or to something else, Paul argues that he's more than capable of transforming our present mortal bodies to ones that are immortal. It's what Don Francisco in one of his songs calls its supernatural cause and effect. The question, how were the dead raised, is simply answered, God raises them. God raises them. And it's a matter of faith and trust and hope and assurance. And you want evidence for it? Well, he raised Jesus from the dead. That's the whole purpose of what Paul wrote the first part of that chapter for. Paul answers the second question from verse 35, with what kind of body will they come in the next few verses? Let's continue to read on. Verse 42. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body. Sorry, if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Um, Let's think about this. Um, Our new bodies evidently have some basic continuity with our present bodies, but they will also have some very different properties. Uh, Warren Wearsby, commenting on this passage of Scripture, says, There is a continuity... Uh, in parenthesis, i.e. it is our body, but there is not identity in that it is not the same body. Uh, He further comments, uh, being philosophers, the Greeks reasoned that the resurrection of the human body was an impossibility. After all, when the body turned to dust, it became soil from which other bodies derived nourishment. In short, the food that we eat is part of the elements of the bodies of generations long gone. And it's going to get worse, because he then gives an illustration. Uh, Not too many young children would be disturbed tonight, that's okay. Pray for them afterwards. Uh, When the body of the founder of Rhode Island, Roger Williams, this is Wearsby's comments, was disinterred, I have no idea why, but it was discovered that the roots of a nearby apple tree had grown through the coffin. So to some degree, the people who ate the apples partook of his body, comments Wearsby. So how can the dead body be physically raised back from the dead? Well, Paul highlights four differences between our resurrection bodies and our present bodies. The present body is perishable. The resurrected body is imperishable. You see, our present bodies, um, I don't know if you've found this or not, it's certainly true for me, are subject to fault, injury, and the aging process. Um, when my wife says, I feel old age creeping up on me, it's a completely different concept from her feeling old. Uh, there's no doubt that each of us, you'll have to think about that for a minute, um, <laughs> there is no doubt that each of us is fearfully and wonderfully made. But you know what? We're not made to last forever. Even from the moment that I'm born, there is evidence of my decline towards death, even as I develop into my childhood. 
And huge sums of money are spent every year by so-called developed nations to prevent, through drugs, exercise programs, and surgery, or to conceal, through cosmetics, Botox, and again, surgery, the physical decline and the atrophy experienced by every human being. We're encouraged to eat healthily, to get a sensible amount of rest and relaxation. But while we might enjoy a longer and a healthier life, nothing, and I mean nothing, can ultimately prevent the inevitable death that awaits all of us somewhere in the future. We're perishable. And against that sad and painful reality, Paul contrasts the present perishable this tent that he lives in, he says elsewhere, with the resurrected body that is imperishable. You see, by contrast, by complete contrast, our resurrected bodies will not be subject to malfunction, will not be subject to injury, and will not be subject to the aging process. Secondly, uh, Paul's argument here sets out that the seed of our dead body is sown in dishonor but it is raised in glory. No matter how well we might look after ourselves physically, how rich or how famous we might become, when we are dead, then we're just the same as each other. It's a moment when all humanity becomes equal again. A dead body is just a dead body. It doesn't matter how rich or famous, doesn't matter how beautiful how healthy you were when you were alive. When you're dead, you're dead. You know, there isn't um, really a good word for the opposite of glory. But when we die, all of us, our earthly remains, all return to dust. And since we don't have a good word for the opposite of glory, I think the best way to try to understand what Paul is saying here in what we've translated the word dishonor is to think of the Jewish understanding, the Old Testament teaching regarding dead bodies as being unclean. If you handled a dead body under the Old Testament law, you were separate from the rest of the community until a time of purification could take place. And it's not that we look disdainfully on, on the residence of where our loved ones once lived, but there is understandably something about that body being unclean. And because it's decaying at such a rapid speed, um, it's, it's subject to all forms of disease and, and, and the generation of something that is not honorable and glorifying. And that's what Paul's saying here. We're sown in dishonor. No matter how much we love the person, when they're dead, we don't have any need for their body no more than they do. It's just wrong to prop them up in the front room or to put them in the freezer and keep them. So we bury them in dishonor. But they're raised in the resurrection in glory. You see, the resurrection body will not decay. It will have power and glory. It's going to be suited to a spiritual environment. It will bear the image of the heavenly glory and even as the angels bear the image of that heavenly glory, so Scripture alludes to the fact that, that since Jesus was made a little lower than the angels for a while, He's been raised above that, that you and I in our resurrected bodies will be even have a greater uh, display of heaven's glory 
than the angels do in our resurrection. Thirdly, we're sown in weakness, but that we're raised in power. That word weakness in the original language uh, is translated into the authorized version uh, 17 times as infirmity. We're sown in infirmity. Um, it can also mean weakness. It can also mean disease and sickness. And isn't that a picture of who you and I are within our current, present, physical state? We're weak. We're infirm. We're diseased. We're sick. And when we no longer have any need for this body, it's dispensed with, it's buried, it's cremated but we will be raised in power. Uh, the Greek word is dunamis. Uh, Jesus' post-resurrection appearances make it clear that our resurrection bodies will evidently not be subject to the limitations of physical matter or the laws of nature. Jesus can enter a room through a locked door. He can vanish from sight while talking with others. He can remain unrecognized by others until special permission. Perception is granted. He can defy gravity in ascending from the earth to disappear in the clouds. That's the resurrection body. That's what Luis Palau says, one day I'm going to go into space and I won't even need a suit, never mind a rocket. And just as Pete this morning was saying, you know, when we talk about the gospel, this is all alien to us. It's embarrassing, isn't it? You see, because if you don't believe this stuff, I must come across as a right idiot. If you believe totally in that this world is all there is to live for and there is nothing for the next, then I must sound like I'm out of the asylum. But that's okay. I'm, I'm quite happy to be an idiot for the sake of the gospel because I believe this stuff. Absolutely, categorically, just placed every hope I have in this stuff, the stuff of Scripture. I stand... Uh, over the graves of believers. I, I, I conduct services in the crematorium. Thanksgiving services for believers. This is the hope I have. This is the absolute certain hope I have. That it's not the end. We're just planting in anticipation of a great harvest of a new life. And fourthly, the body, the natural body dies, but the spiritual body is raised. And there's a lovely little interaction going on in Paul's thinking that we'll look at in a moment. See, this natural body of mine, of yours, it breathes air, and it's suited for life on land. Uh, I don't know if you've ever done any scuba diving. Uh, some years ago, um, my family and myself were out in Western Australia, and I had the privilege, just a great privilege of being able to do a, a, a scuba dive. It was a buddy dive. I'm not experienced. A girl had to hold my hand as I went down 40 feet or whatever it was. But anyway, I, I, even though she was holding my hand, I still saw the barrier reef. But I needed, I needed an aqualung. I needed scuba gear on in order to go down there. Because this body just isn't suited for that environment. And in the same way that life that is to come, this body just isn't suited for that environment. 
And so uh, this natural body um, lives in what we call the natural world. But the next life is going to be a different order of reality. And the body that we live in just now is just presently not suited for us. If you read on in the verse 50, you'll see that. It says there, um, I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood, what you and I live in just now, cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So it will be a spiritual body. Our resurrected bodies will be real. They'll not be immaterial. Um, best we can figure, until God tells us otherwise, or shows us in reality, is that our new resurrected bodies are going to be composed of a material like the bodies that angels currently have. So we read in Luke 20, um, Jesus speaking in verse 35 through 36, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in that age which is to come, the spiritual age, and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, for they will no longer die. For they are like the angels. They are God's children since they are children of the resurrection, Jesus says. So what we're being told there in Scripture is that we're going to be perfectly suited to live in the very presence of God and in his new universe. Just going to ping this up for you on the screen. There are seven facts about our resurrected bodies that are listed in Wilmington's book of Bible lists. It will be a recognizable body. It will be a body like Christ's body. It will be a body that will permit eating. It will be a body in which the spirit predominates. It will be a body unlimited by time, gravity, or space. It will be an eternal body, and it will be a glorious body. And if you're taking notes and you don't have time to get that written down, uh, these will appear on the website uh, after I finish preaching. So you can go there and get the references and check that out as well. So that's the first two questions that Paul answers in regard to the resurrection. And although it's not there, this description of what we've looked at ought to lead us to ask another question. Are you sitting on the edge of your seats asking the question, how can I get one of these bodies? Because we should, like, boy, I want one of those. I really want one of those. Let's read on, verse 45. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man from heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the man from heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. You see, here's the thing. Adam, the first man that we read of in Genesis 2, also in Genesis 1, and Jesus, of whom the New Testament is all about, and actually all the Old Testament, these two men have this in common. They are both the first members of a race of human beings. Adam's body is made from the dust of the earth, and so is ours, because we are all descended from Adam. Because Jesus' new body is made of heavenly materials, those who are descended from him receive heavenly bodies. Now, in drawing this comparison, I could put on a Russian-accented meerkat voice, but I won't. 
But the point is this. Body type is determined by your ancestry. Your earthly body is linked genetically to Adam, the first human being. In order to get a new resurrection body, you must become a descendant of the first person to have a resurrected body, Jesus. Simples. Get the meerkat connection now. It's that simple. It really isn't difficult. This is precisely why Jesus says to Nicodemus in his interview with him in John 3 that he shouldn't be surprised that Jesus says he must be born again. Better translated, you must be born from above. You see, Nicodemus then gets himself into a right fankle by trying to understand spiritual truths by human reasoning. How can a man crawl back into his mother's womb, grotesque, and be born again? Jesus basically is saying, No, Nicodemus, marvel not that I say to you, you must be born from above. You must have a spiritual birth. You see, you and I had no choice in the decision of becoming physical beings. Although, at least one of our parents, hopefully both of them did. But our parents have nothing to do in determining the outcome of our spiritual birth. That choice is entirely yours, it's entirely mine to make. And the difference between physical birth and the spiritual birth is directly connected to human choices. You see, the only way to receive this new body is to trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. So let me put a question to you. If you're not a Christian, do you want to become one? Do you want to make that choice right here and now tonight? Do you want to avoid the judgment of God for your sins? Do you want to turn in repentance towards God and receive this new life that can only be found in Jesus Christ? Do you want to receive assurance and hope that you too can have a body like Jesus? Because that is what Paul is saying is available to everyone who believes the gospel and acts upon it. That's how you get it. You turn from your sin, you trust Jesus as Savior, and you await His coming. So another question, the fourth one we're going to consider is, when do I get my new spiritual body? Well, let's read on into verse 50. I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. By that, it's a euphemism for dying. But we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with, with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. All Christians will receive resurrected bodies sometime in the future. But here, to the Corinthian church and also to the Thessalonican church, the Thessalonican church, Paul reveals a hitherto disclosed 
uh, fact. It's a mystery that some people will actually receive their resurrection bodies without first experiencing physical death. In First Thessalonians 4, verses 15 through 17, Paul tells his readers that as Jesus returns to the earth, he will lift up or rapture all believers who are currently alive on the earth at that time to meet him in the air. Those who have died will receive their new bodies at that time, and those still living will have their bodies transformed instantaneously. At that time, our salvation will be complete, and we will experience an altogether different type of body, one that is designed to cope with an altogether different kind of physical and spiritual reality as Jesus remakes heaven and remakes earth. That's our hope. That's, that's our destiny. That's what we're heading towards. Not just living forever, forever as incorporeal uh, spirits in a strange, vagueish sort of world somewhere. We're going to be physically alive in a new physical world with new physical strokes, spiritual bodies that can cope with that environment to live with God forever. And I want one of those. Actually, I've been assured that I'm getting one of those one day. Either when I pass through the doorway of death and await that resurrection, or when the trumpet sounds and I'm changed instantaneously into that new garb. Wow. Wow. So what are we supposed to do with that piece of information? How should this change the way I live my life now? Well, let's read on into the final few verses of this chapter. Verse 55. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So I think there's two things there, that the knowledge of this future reality of what is our destiny, the assurance that we're going to get new bodies to live in this new environment, that ought to affect us profoundly in two specific ways that we find there in Scripture. The first one is there in verses 55 through 57. That knowledge, that experience gives us freedom from the fear of death. It is natural and indeed it is healthy to grieve when we lose loved ones. But we do not grieve like the rest of men who have no hope, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 13. You see, while we may know the harrowing truth that the wages of sin is death, Romans 6, 23, first part of that verse, we are also comforted and reassured to know that the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord, Romans 6, 23, the second part of that verse. You see, on the one hand, I know that I and my loved ones and you 
Oh, you're my loved ones, sorry. <laughs> Made a distinction that I didn't mean to. Don't be offended. I love you, I really do. But on the one hand, I know that we can never match up to God's holy and perfect standards because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. But I also know the righteousness that comes by faith is available for everyone who believes in Jesus Christ, Romans 3.22. And that they are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ, Romans 3.24. And so I hold all of that truths in balance as I view the death of a loved one as I do my own impending death. Death's outrageous. It's outrageous. Whenever it comes, it's a blight on the life that God created and saw was good. Praise God, one day He will make all things new. I invite you to turn to Romans 8 as we read this through an application. It's on page 1134 in the Pew Bible. Romans 8 and verse 1. I'm going to read the words that are there, but I'm also going to um, just comment on them. So bear with me and just let your eyes scan the text from verse 1 through verse 4. As I say this, not just for myself, but on behalf of you as well if you're a believer. I can courageously face death knowing that there is now, read the words, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Jesus Christ, the law of the Spirit of life, that is born from above in Jesus, the second Adam, has set me free from the law of sin and death, the natural life inherited from the first Adam. For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending His Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature but according to the Spirit. And so confidently we say, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of the sin is the law. But Jesus has dealt with all of that. It's a done deal. It's finished. Paul goes on here in Corinthians. He gives us, but thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. And what's the second thing that that knowledge should do for us? It's there in verse 58. It gives us motivation to live for Christ. Because of this, we should be standing firm and allowing nothing to move you. We should always give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord because we know that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. And what is the work of the Lord? Well, think about how Paul describes it, uh, his understanding of this work in Colossians 1, verses 28 through 29. He says, We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. And to this end I labor, 
struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. Many churches and many individual Christians have adopted the words, knowing Jesus and making him known as their vision statement. I wonder, um, do they really live up to it? Do I? To you, knowing Jesus and making him known. So that's why we're here. It's the only reason why we're here. And it's vitally important because, you see, if others too are to have bodies like Jesus' one, then we need to share the gospel with them. Simples. Let's pray.